always see a horse. Two, two things always happen when we're here. We always see a horse and Rory is always late. And we always have fine food. And so there's sorry, three, three things three that happen things, when you come fine, here. Fine food guaranteed. One of them is it, that's a given, Chinch. The, the fine the food is a given. <laughs> the horse is always quite the startling surprise to those of us who live in the Withington Didsbury area. Do you think he's also late because he's been past the house twice? The trouble is he, he left when he was meant to be here. And of course, um, also joining us is... Oh, here oh, he is. Oh, hi, Rory. Here he is. Hi, Rory. Thanks for coming. Do you want to, do you want to take a seat? Uh, maybe. Um, right. We've even got you so much as not only cutlery, but also a microphone and some headphones. This is, this is the magnificence of all the mechanical apparatus. And a selection of juices. Have I missed the food? You haven't missed the no, food, and no. I'm glad that that's the thing that very much sits at the top of your priority list. I can only apologise. Hang on. This is my headphones. Are... I, need to, I need to loosen myself. Whilst, whilst you sort that out, can I ask Chinch a question? Yes. What's a donut peach? I th- I, you know what? Of all the people coming to this podcast, I thought, who will notice <laughs> the, the donut peach? Is a peach the shape of a donut? Pressed apple, apricot, and donut peach juice. Yes. Did they not have orange? There's not a donut. There's not donut juice in there. You do realise that it must. The, the peach, <laughs> peach, donut, comma, peach, donut juice. <laughs> that would be quite the appealing uh, prospect for breakfast. Trouble is, it? that's why I bought it because of the word donut. You went straight for it. Did, yeah. did, did you not see the word glaze missing? No. Dough missing? If it had apple, apricot and peach would have been one thing, but apple, apricot and donut peach, bam, straight can, in. Can I, can I also ask Chinch a question, having apologised for being late? Which, which has been made a matter of record. Uh, do you do your big shop at M&S? Uh, we don't do a big shop at all. No, we don't, do we? No, we shop every day. Do you? For fresh produce, oh. or produce as we call it in Woodford. <laughs> You also, you also grow it in the back garden. We do. Apart from the fact that the slugs have been right at it. I say we do. <laughs> Nikki is Nikki furious does. with the slug population oh, of Woodford. good Lord. Because they, they number more than humans. Nikki, do you know what the thing to do with slugs is? What? I don't want to be a, sm- a, 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 a wise-ass. <laughs> a city <laughs> slicker with some gardening <laughs> advice coming up. So, we all know Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. We know that Valentine's Day is a day for romance. But it's, it's it. also the, it's the best day for killing slugs. You put your slug pellets down. This, this podcast is providing public service announcements now. You put your slug pellets down on Valentine's Day, kills the babies. So, you go, you go on a rampage. Yes. A Valentine's Day massacre. A Valentine's Day if massacre. You will. Yeah. How do slugs know it's Valentine's Day? <laughs> they do not know it's Valentine's they Day. Are they are very romantic. They are very randy creatures, slugs. So what they do is they, they take Ooh. each other out on dates so on they, Valentine's they Day. They see the red balloons go up in Clinton cards and they, they know what's coming. <laughs> they immediately have... They go out on Valentine's Day, they go to the cinema or whatever, have a meal, have full intercourse, and have children, <laughs> and the children are killed by the pellets. Are you telling me that those red balloons are a slug aphrodisiac? They could, that seems to be the evidence, yeah. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends... Talk football over food. We are currently being entertained at the home of the notable architect Dave Jones's neighbour, <laughs> known locally as Chinfork, the Hinchcliffe resident. So you can therefore guarantee that owing to the incredible hospitality afforded by Mrs. Nikki Hinchcliffe, Rory Smith from the New York Times, Steve Wyeth from BT Sport, and me, Hugh Ferris, all rocked up nice and early to join her and her sous chef, Andy Hinchcliffe, for a spot of brunch. Um, I say sous chef, I might have been promoting you beyond actually what you're capable of. You did the shop, yep. you brought the bags in, you dumped them on the floor, yep. and you said, so long, no, no, sister. No, no, I did dump them on the floor. I put them away. Oh, you know where things go. Fridge-based items. You just don't know how to fridge. get them out again. I don't know how to get them out or cook them. 
But I leave that to the experts. Well, this 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 juice, as we've already mentioned, the, the M&S spirit of summer. Are we allowed to? Because there are other juices out there. For there are other juices retailers. based on donuts. This isn't yeah. the BBC. We can plug what we like. Yeah, and hope, and hope of a deal. I think yeah. I think we're happy to to make it clear that we are only drinking top quality fresh fruit juice. Pressed pineapple, peach, and passion fruit is the other option available. Incidentally, this yeah. do you think they just had some sort of kind of competition to see how many words they could have before the word juice on the labelling. I think these are too many ingredients. Well, would you like what, three? just one? No. But think, wait a minute, this three thing, apple, apricot and peach, mm-hmm. this, this, this tree, apparently tree like BLT, it has to be three because people like three. Oh, it's the, it's the rule of threes. It's the rule of three. You can't have just two. Like hinge and bracket, didn't work, did it? Cannon and ball, rubbish. So <laughs> that's why you always need three. In response to that, I would say hail and pace. <laughs> Again, rubbish. What <laughs> from a wise you meant to say, didn't you? I meant to say hail yeah, and pace. Yeah, I know what yeah, I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would stand by it. I, I tried to find it by the way. You know, we were at Rory's last week, and uh, Rory had also been shopping in, in M&S, and uh, we had those uh, rather magnificent uh, Rice crispy and Chocolate... Caramel crispy Bites. Caramel yes. crispy Bites. <laughs> well, because we didn't apparently give them the correct name. And we did get a tweet from someone called Steve McGovern, who says, I work in M&S, and no one ever knows what those two-for-four-pound tubs of chocolate things are called. Just to be sure, they are called Mini Bites. The more you know, the better. There you go. So more public service information available via set-piece menu. We seem to only exclusively eat at M&S, which reflects upon us rather poorly, I would imagine. Thank you for all those tweets. Uh, that just one of them. And your emails as well. You've been getting in touch. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to hear from you at set-piece menu on Twitter and set-piece menu at gmail.com. You're all taking your homework very seriously and we appreciate every subscription, every review, every rating and every time you tell one of your friends or family members, uh, we are grateful for every single one of those moments. Now, much has uh, happened since we were last together, pulling back the curtain somewhat. Uh, Many of you would have realised on account of the fact that we didn't talk about it, um, that we recorded last week's pod before the terrible events in Manchester, a place, of course, that we all call home. Um, So we thought it fitting to... Albeit briefly, just just reflect on what was an incredibly terrible night. And Rory, you actually spent some time in the morning thereafter, the early hours of the morning there. So you're perhaps best placed to say just how extraordinarily sad the scene was. Yeah, I I got a call at about half eleven on the Monday night. From when, when, when the office calls from New York, my phone just says NYT. It's like a switchboard. So I, I kind of assumed very occasionally my editor, Andy, who's a lovely man, uh, will, will call me towards the end of the evening. So I assumed it was Andy wanting to talk about um, whatever terrible copy I'd filed that, <laughs> that day uh, and criticise me. He never does that. He's very nice. But it, it wasn't. It was the foreign desk saying, can, can you get into Manchester? That Something's happened. We're not sure what. And I'd kind of not been paying attention. I'd been watching TV and putting the dog to bed and what have you. And... Uh, and then as I turned on the radio in the car, you realised there's that thing where you kind of think, well, it could just be that everyone's jumpy and, and it, it could be the rumours it was a balloon or, you know, some sort of gas thing. And then when the police confirmed fatalities, you sort of thought, you just get this horrible sinking feeling. And, yeah, I was there till about five in the morning uh, talking to our witnesses, trying to work out what had gone on, uh, which is a much harder form of journalism than I normally have to do. Um, and I think in the day, it helped actually working on it because... You kind of get into this mindset where you are doing a job and the full horror of what's happened doesn't really hit you. But in the three three or four days that I continued working on it after that, you kind of, yeah, you start to process it, you start to reflect. And I I wasn't affected. I wouldn't claim to be a survivor or or anything like that. But I think the mood in the the city generally 
has been that it's a very personal type of pain, and I think it's because I think it's because Manchester's not actually a particularly big city. It's a it's a ambitious place, a global place, 2.5 million people in, in Greater Manchester, but the city itself is small. You know, you can walk from one end of town to the other in about 15 minutes, and it, it I don't know. It just feels so f- everything so familiar and everything so personal that it that it really has affected the city as a whole. And I'm sure that you know Tony Walsh's poem and what have you that, that I think people latched onto as a as a show of defiance and spirit that will come through in the days that in the days and weeks to come. But it 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 does take a long time. Someone got in touch with me on Twitter and said, oh, a city can't be scarred. It's a stupid metaphor. I think that's completely wrong. I think a city can be scarred, and I think Manchester is. It, it's a place that still is quite sorrowful and in pain, and I think that probably goes for, for most people around the city, whether they knew anybody who was there or or not, and that's the other thing, of course, that because it's such a small place. There's a lot of people who knew someone who knew someone who was there, and that brings it home all the more. The sense of community is is something that with time passing seems to be diluted over and over and over. And the way that particularly political things have been discussed over the last couple of years, it, it feels like society is very, very divided. But when things like this happen, suddenly you realise what the sense of community is, even in somewhere, as you say, it's, it's big, Manchester, but it's not it's not so big that it can't have a sense of community. I went to St Anne's Square to see the, the tributes a few days ago. And like you say, the, the journalism aspect is, is strange because you, you are slightly detached from, from everything. You have to be. You have to keep your emotions at a certain distance. But Gemma and I, going to, going to see that, t- tears were shed, and it's not, it's not something that readily happens to me. I, that, that doesn't really affect me. News doesn't affect journalists in that way because we, we're taught not to, and we, we also put up a barrier that makes sure that we don't because it gives us an opportunity to make sure that we report on it fairly. But, yeah. It was an incredible, an incredible scene. And if you see the pictures, even as the days go by, how big that tribute is becoming and seeing the firemen there volunteering to help basically make the tribute seem as, as beautifully placed and, and to, to the visitors from either Manchester or beyond, there were, there were flowers and tributes being brought almost every five, ten seconds. It was a, an incredible sight. Um, to matters seemingly insignificant by comparison, but hopefully entertaining for you. This week, like every week, we'll be discussing one footballing subject before reclining as if on an unreserved sun lounger to hear one of Chinch's soccer stories. Our subject comes today just, just take, just from take, Michael just Peter. Just take a moment to enjoy this. The food is being delivered as we speak. This is extraordinary. This, this might be a first spread. as well. A first that we, we're going to, as politely as we possibly can, but for time reasons, eat as we speak. This is poached eggs on muffins with bacon and mushrooms. You I could know, have done um, that in the M&S. Come on, we've had an M&S theme. You could not do it in an M&S way. Thank you, Jim. You want, should, I try, should I try again? Thank you, Nikki. This. Mm. Look at that. This is a buttered muffin with a perfectly poached and peppered egg and crispy bacon with sizzling mushrooms on the side. And this feel slightly uncomfortable is a chinch <laughs> M&S brunch. Oh. And I'm a Mrs. Chinch M&S oh. brunch. Do you think that's the voice Steve used like nine months before? Oh. <laughs> well, on Valentine's Day, before he went out to kill the slugs. Uh, so, um, a recap. Yes, this is, we should give him the, uh, the, the attention that is due. The subject today comes from Michael Peter, who got in touch via setpiecemenu at gmail.com. That is, from what I can tell, his full name, rather than a slightly southern US combo of two first names that you tend to hear uh, quite a lot. And Michael asks this question. Is there a plan B? The elusive plan B is only really talked about when it's missing. Sven didn't have one for England. Manuel Pellegrini didn't have one for
for Manchester City. And as recently as Walter Mazzari at Watford's suggestions his lacking of a plan B was actually one of the admittedly myriad reasons why he was sacked. Michael wonders if having no plan B actually just means you don't play very well in the first place. And if successful teams do have a plan B or perhaps just play more effectively in their systems. So it's time to talk plan B and we don't get to talk about uh, mid 2000s uh, rap slash mainstream pop. And so plan B comes about mainly because... I think because plan B would be really upset to be described <laughs> as mainstream, by the way. Um, well, a couple of songs, he, he, he hit the mainstream popular music charts. The top 40, but, yeah. But plan B is often disparaged somewhat, um, but actually, does a team need a plan B? Well, when we say plan B, do we not just mean uh, they should play long ball in the second half and, and try and cross it? That well, that's why it's been disparaged. You know, no, you know, that's last resort, isn't it? Is that, last is that different? Yeah, that's last resort, where they just where you need an equaliser or you're just lumping it forward that's just lumping it forward isn't it yeah. surely that cannot be plan B but you only ever hear you know he hasn't got a plan B and yeah. it, it, admittedly Matsari's a slightly different kettle of fish but you only ever hear he, they don't have a plan B when it's a team that broadly wants to keep possession yes wants to pass the football yes and they are looking for an equaliser or a winner and they they can't find it and they refuse to go long that's when, when teams are told oh, they don't have a plan B I would say that most most really good teams do have plans B, C, D, and E, but you don't notice them switching between them because they can they can implement them as the as the occasion sees fit. So sometimes uh, this isn't breaking the fourth wall, I don't think. But R- Rafa Benitez once told me that the thing that he admired most about Mourinho's Chelsea—that's a sentence you don't hear very often. <laughs> Benitez yeah. admires Mourinho. Is that they could hurt you? you should in put that in a book. You should. Someone should. <laughs> some talented, handsome devil should. Um, the, um, that Chelsea team, that you know, the 2005-2006, that that sort of era Chelsea team, could hurt you in any number of ways. So they could keep possession. They could counterattack. They could cross it. They could go long to Drogba. They could do everything. You would never say they need a plan B because they were always they tended to be winning. To be honest, but th- they had various plans in action at all times and that's what really good teams do mm. well I know with dropping it down a division watching Huddersfield this season under David Wagner they had a very uh, specific player way, uh, way of playing a 4-2-3-1 defensively when they got the ball things started to change they drop a holding midfielder back in between centre halves the full backs would become wing backs that was the way that they played but going in towards the end of the season they knew they were going to be in the playoffs he started to play an, uh, actively play in games a more counter-attacking game because he felt he might need them come the playoffs because the two-legged affairs away from home they might be under pressure they might have to learn a plan B a different way of playing ultimately they didn't need to use that because the teams that played them actually sat off and Huddersfield could play their natural game anyway but he clearly lumping it long is not a plan B it's formational it has to be formational where you're saying well we normally play the lot of width we want to get crosses in but if we can't do that have we another way of playing to cause problems to the opposition and his way was to sit a little bit deeper and play on the counter attack so that was and he hadn't done it all season long but he, he tried to give the players another way of playing just in case they came up against it in the playoffs and ultimately it proved massively successful he didn't need it an awful lot but they end up in the Premier League so that's it has to be formational a plan B, C, D whatever it is surely you just change the tactics Guardiola does a lot of Man City doesn't ask a lot of his players to chop and change positions if things aren't working. Surely that's plans A, B, C, D in evidence, isn't it? Where the players are more more demands on them tactically. But do you not think that Guardiola would be accused of not having a plan B because all of his formational shifts still rest on the same style, which is keeping the ball and passing? It's it's A one, two, three, and four, perhaps, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 
what David Wagner has um, clearly achieved with Huddersfield is quite admirable. Wagner, I, uh, Wagner. Wagner. I can't get you. This is my musical education. I'm I still know. gravitating from Wagner to Wagner. It's quite, it's he's, quite he's difficult not to get around. He's not a 19th century opera composer, don't worry. But perhaps he, he could is be. He's a US in... international, so he's already been anglicised before we had a go. He is incredibly talented, though, so maybe he could turn his hand. <laughs> That's true. Although, judging by his singing a... over the last few <laughs> days, perhaps not. What he has done, though, from from what Chincha said is, is even more admirable if you consider how attritional the championship is because mm-hmm. one thing that I feel watching football at the moment particularly in England is that because it is so relentless it must be quite challenging for coaches to have a plan B or a plan C because their players need to be so well drilled at the initial problem solving aspect of plan A you feel as though the, the games come thick and fast there's not a great deal of time for, for development there's not a great deal of time to to instill tactical versatility in your players because that's a luxury that most top flight coaches in particular aren't really afforded so you, you do get the sense that, that these coaches and managers are having to, to so carefully drill their players in, in what they need them to do for their next opponent that having that sort of overarching look at the bigger picture and, and, and having that tactical versatility is just something that they simply haven't got the time to impl- impl- implement so the fact that, that David Wagner has been able to do it in a 46 game championship season is, is quite admirable but also in terms of whether the players are capable of taking it on board and saying, actually, this is the way we want to play. This is my style of football. But if it doesn't work, we're going to play a little bit narrower. Or well, if that doesn't work, we're going to play with, with two up front rather than one up front. But the players have then still got to be able to tactically understand, we're going to switch to this, we're going to switch to this. We're going to... And sometimes players, as you say, find it hard enough playing just one way because they do get, up, get knocked off track. And certainly when they drop out of the Premier League, mentally, it gets tougher and tougher. They do have technical ability, but their minds can wander and they can actually lose track of the, the only way that they normally play for 90% of the season so then you challenge them to say right have it in your mind we might play three or four different ways a lot of players certainly out of the Premier League wouldn't be able to handle the demands of actually changing positions and, and being asked to play it so when, when should that information have been imparted to them is it part of pre-season to be able to get three or four different ways of playing so ingrained that it's very easy to switch between the two mm. or can you add what a pre-season has taught you, particularly if it's a new manager, can you then add plans B, C and D throughout the season or is that too much information well, even even in that situation? Looking at David Wagner's situation when he took over at Huddersfield, there was so much work to do in terms of getting players in, getting himself <coughs> used to the, the players that he was going to work with. Just getting them to play his way was, was tough. So he only started to adapt his style maybe towards the playoffs, four or five games before the playoffs actually came. And they knew they were going to be, had the luxury of knowing they were going to be in the playoffs. So then at Derby, the couple of games away from home, they actively played a counter-attacking. So he actually must have worked on it later in the season, in training, but then said to the players, it doesn't matter whether we win, lose or draw this game, we're going to put this style of football into practice so you can get the feel of it in case we need to do it against Sheffield Wednesday in the, in the away leg. It never, it never transpired. But I don't think he would have started it in pre-season and said, right, we're going to give you all this information three or four different ways of playing let's establish a way of playing as the season develops then maybe as different games come up then you just start to tweak the system or injuries come along and you have to make changes but I would be surprised maybe even whether Premier League managers would work with them maybe over time they can but when they first come into the job it's just really getting the players used to the way that they want to play and getting results is the important thing as well they haven't got the luxury of time well if you look at Conte they trained at least two systems in pre-season last year they trained the kind of 4-2-3-1-E type thing that Mourinho had been playing that Conte thought was the, the easiest way to, to start but at the same time and quite gently at first I think they were training the three what, what would become the 3-4-3 three, 
and I think that, or what, however you want to characterise how Chelsea play. Mm. Um, and if you look at look at Juventus, particularly, I don't know if I name dropped my conversation with Renzo Olivieri yet. Mm-hmm. I normally, I normally, I normally do it again. Like to do quite, quite fast. But the thing he he talked me through. So I saw Olivieri the day after. Juve played Barca in Barcelona. We've mentioned Cavaciano before, yeah. but um, I don't know if we've name dropped specifically. Okay. You might have done. Um, you name dropped so often. It's quite likely. It's hard to keep tabs. I do name drop a lot. It's, the, the, the Totti thing is still sort of clanging around generally, so the other names kind of get <laughs> lost large in amongst metallic that. Metallic yeah. barrel. <laughs> when when I saw my <laughs> when I saw my good friend Francesco Totti retire, <laughs> you must have been very emotionally connected. To I, I felt oh, just I just welled up. I just you know it's and, and I know that he was he was thinking of me. The whole of Rome was thinking of you. Well, exactly. I have I am the first person to write about Rome as a city. I think um, no. So the um, when I went to Cavertiano to see Olivieri, it was the day after Barca played Juve, and he said that what he really liked about that game, the nil-nil draw, was the fact that Allegri kept changing things. So even though Juventus were getting the result they wanted, you know, Barca weren't scoring, they shut them down pretty easily, Allegri just kept making these little tweaks. So he'd, he'd go to five at the back. He'd, he'd then, you know, push a, push a winner slightly further forward. He brought on Quadrada. He'd change things a little bit just to keep asking Barcelona questions so that they couldn't ever develop a rhythm of play that meant they could kind of get into gear and then maybe get that goal that would, would sort of kickstart the Figure the out the problem because yeah. the problem's changing. The problem the kept changing. And I think that's what really, really good managers do is they will say, right, we... These don't... I, I know what Chinch means about different formations and to... To, to train a defence to play three at the back rather than four at the back takes a lot of work and takes a lot of time and I think that's right that Unless a lot of managers really intelligent high quality players yeah. who can just switch it on and off or yeah. players who've done it before yeah. I guess yeah. Yeah. but I think in most cases what you're looking at for in terms of plan B's and again I, I, I think genuinely I believe that the only time we ever hear plan B's mentioned is when passing teams won't go long and they say oh he doesn't have a plan B but the best coaches have loads of different ideas that are constantly being implemented and being removed throughout a game. So you, you, you do just see these formations change ever so slightly. You know, the emphasis goes to the right rather than the left, or they, they play through the middle, or they look for more width or whatever. And that's, that's the sort of tactical flexibility the very best managers have. I think Conte has that. I think Allegri has that. Wagner may well have that. It, it'd be interesting to see how he does if he can get a slightly higher calibre of player. Do you player. mean Wagner? Do you mean Wagner? He was thinking of Wagner Love. Wagner Love, yeah. yes, who very much is the archetypal Plan B and has been for many yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. Um, Who's the Wagner guy that was on? Is it Britain's Got Talent? That was just oh, Wagner. I think he was just called Wagner. He was Wagner, mm. but he probably should have been Wagner. He was but probably he actually Dave from Colchester. He probably shouldn't have been on the television. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. true. But yeah, I think so. I think lots of what we think of as being a Plan B isn't a Plan B. I think Chinch is right. What we think of as being Plan B is last is, is the stuff of last resort. Well, the, the people that say he's not got a Plan B are also the people that are demanding. That's my that, 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 I was just. I, I was. I was <laughs> <laughs> that was my impression of Rory Smith doing an impression of Sean Dyche. <laughs> it was a tribute. It, the, the people that say that are also those that are demanding a substitution after 55 minutes to change things up as though a change of personnel is the only way of changing what's going on on the pitch. The other thing you never get is you never hear Tony Pulis told when he's 3-0 down well he doesn't have a plan B, why doesn't he start uh, passing it? To pass it. Yeah. Yeah. Well because people don't associate Tony Pulis with a plan B. No, but because, Tony, because Tony Pulis' base status is he's gone with the plan B. Yeah. Everybody else's plan B is plan Tony B. Pulis' <laughs> first choice. But it's also incredibly successful, so it why should not, he change? Not a criticism at all, and th- that's the thing. If so where's his plan C is what we really should be asking. What's Tony Pulis' plan C? For the Pulis is quite an example. That teams who have a system that works don't need a plan B. But 
you're right that there is a kind of over over simplicity of the way we interpret how you change games. If we do associate it with either going long or bringing on another, put on another forward. Do you remember the Newcastle? My favourite substitution. What's your favourite substitution of all time? <laughs> I can tell you. My favourite substitution. Is it when Totti came on? Or <laughs> no. Clang. <laughs> my favourite substitution of all time was when Man- Mancini brought brought on Nigel De Jong. For a forward when Man City were drawing nil nil at Newcastle. Oh yes, and everybody get really. I do remember that substitution. What's yes. he doing? They said. What? Why is Roberto Mancini what such a an idiot? idiot? What a buffoon! And what happened? And what happened is that obviously De Jong freed up Yaya Torre, who scored uh, either once or twice, and City won two nil. And Mancini uh, looked like both. a genius. He scored both. Yeah. And it, and it was it was his own entire country had woken up to the idea that you don't need to have more attackers on the pitch to score more goals. And it was incredible, this kind of, this counterintuitive, he's brought on a defensive midfielder to try and win a game, and it's worked. It was, it was as though the entire sort of Premier League audience had been sitting in a cave with their eyes shut for 20 years. But, but that happened a lot. Nigel De Jong would come on a lot to free up Yaya Torre, yeah. because he was playing as one of two central defensive midfielders. But we all know, we've but all been watching Yaya Torre, his better position is to be freer and not have to chase back and be able to, so that, to affect the attack instead. That's a plan B. And also you plan A. You were about to drop your mic there. Mic because, <laughs> because teams, that's why we have holding midfielders to free up four or five other players. And they don't have to be strikers. That is the point, people. <laughs> They're not just there to run around kicking people and getting booked. They're there to serve a purpose. How many teams have played with these players for God knows how long? And only now we're saying because a substitution like that is made, oh, it's freed up. Yeah, yeah. But that's what they start the game with, all the teams that have a holding midfielder. That's the whole bloody point. Sorry, I swore there. Uh, you did. It's take care. I take it back. Does that need editing out? Um, no, I think we can allow. Can we, can that we get much? away with that yeah. one? Yeah. But this this comes back to something we've previously discussed, doesn't it? That people don't understand as much about football as they perhaps believe they do. It's, it's, apart it's from subtle, us. Apart, apart from, from us. us. But it's subtler, isn't it? Those subtle the subtle changes mm. can make a big difference. It doesn't have to be a you know a big clunking change of formation or taking a little striker off and replacing them with Peter Crouch mm. for for a plan B to be implemented. I mean, you, you mentioned. Juventus and Roberto Mancini. It's no coincidence that, that they are both Italian. Certainly are. And you, and you do see that. I, I really feel watching Serie A on a regular basis. It's not just the top clubs and the very best coaches in the top flight in Italy that clearly have many different ideas that they can use and utilise. It happens all the way through the division. Even the bottom teams are very, very flexible in terms of formation. Even to my relatively untrained eye, you can see switches in play. They, they effortlessly go from three at the back to four at the back. Their, their full backs push forward as wing backs without sort of so much as seemingly needing to think about it. I mean, I always think Napoli are a really good example of, of they've got a front four or five players who are more or less interchangeable. It's a really fluid way that they play. And, and perhaps without getting to, back, back to something that Chinch touched on earlier as, as to whether the players are, are intelligent enough or open-minded enough to, to respond to lots of different tactical ideas, that perhaps just in Italy, it's ingrained, isn't it, in players from a very young age that you, you need to be versatile, you need to be flexible, and perhaps that just isn't something that we see with English players or players who... I mean, obviously, so much of the Premier League is is not homegrown players anymore. You don't want to be all Euro snob about it. No, no, but, that, but I, 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 I didn't think, want it to come across. No, but as I'm, that. I'm about to agree with you. I don't want to be a Euro snob. You can be a Euro snob if you want. It's all right. We'll the, talk about Andy Carroll being brilliant for ten minutes afterwards. If you to, like. to make us all feel for the, for <laughs> yeah. the catharsis. Yeah. The, but I, I do think that. The, I mean, the Premier League isn't 
for all its many, many qualities, and it does have many qualities, Chinch, not least the quality of the coverage on Sky Sports. <laughs> That's quite extraordinary. Right. Absolutely. That makes it the best league in the world. Yeah. Well, the production values are quite an important thing in exploring why the Premier League is so popular. But it's it's not a very thoughtful lead. I don't think anyone would really make the claim that its great strength is its kind of whatever the noun is from cerebral. It's cerebralness. It's not it's not a lead where lots of people it, it's it's fast and it's furious and it's exciting and it's it's dramatic and it's dynamic. But there's not a huge amount of kind of you watch a lot of Premier League games and you, you see there's not many people standing around thinking that everyone's playing it's, it's very instinctive there might not be time to exactly there, there probably isn't time to and that's because that that pace is fetishized then that becomes an ever-fulfilling circle and i think the premier league's getting faster rather than slower but cerebral and fetishized i love the way you speak. look at this chinch oh i'm trying to make just gorgeous you do come out with he's frothing at the mouth trying to make up for the fact i was late <laughs> were the, you um, <laughs> I the, uh, but i think if in, and you, what i was going to say was, was to, to agree with steve was that bits of managers in italy for all that we think, oh, you know, the difference with the Premier League is in the last 10 minutes, even a team that's 2-0 down will keep on going. They'll keep on running forward, trying to score a goal. And that's true. But in Italy, managers who've worked there and in England will say that the big difference is that if a team's 2-0 down in Italy in the last 10 minutes, they might not be running forward quite as fast as an English team, but they'll be changing formation all the time. They'll be, doing, they'll be constantly asking you questions. They'll be saying, all right, well, you, you've answered that, but what about if I do this? And that's not something we see very often. We don't see in England a huge amount of, of tactical kind of subtlety and nuance change during a game, and I think that is a huge difference. But are there some, if we talk about Tony Pulis or pretty much half the Premier League, the coaches... The bad half. The, the, the bad half <laughs> the, the, of the, the bad Premier 14. League. <laughs> coaches probably managing those teams... As we said before, it's hard enough to get your team to play one system well. Like Tony Pulis, maybe, well, look, look at his record in terms of keeping teams in the Premier League. He'll think, look, OK, there might be certain games where our style of play won't work and we'll get beaten. But we'll take that because 70% of the time, the way that we play will get us a result, will keep us in the league. So there's, there's no demand on certain coaches to change and say, well, actually, it's pointless because actually this works really well oh, for I'm not. us. And I'm quite happy to lose four games in ten if we can win four games in ten. I don't need to win nine of them playing brilliant football and have that adaptability and flexibility in the squad. I'm going to stick to what I think this squad is really capable of. And, and we, we don't need a plan B or plan C because plan A, over the course of a season, will probably serve us pretty well. I'm not, it's not a criticism of the coaches at all. I think that... Mine the, was. That manager, <laughs> I, uh, the, uh, I think managers adapt to the environments that they're in. And, and like, like you say, the English football seems to... Pri- the Premier League seems to prioritise having one approach that you can do very well. And the teams mm. that tend to struggle are the teams that that don't have an approach they can do very well. So they're teams without real, any real identity or don't have a plan. I've always thought this is, this is something that and literally anyone who's ever spent any time with me will have heard a million times. But in football, having a plan, whatever that plan is, is basically a guarantee of success because so many teams have literally no plan. And it's just like, yeah, put those on the pitch, see what happens. What Pulis has done is he's got a plan that's not great to watch. He's not going to kind of... You wouldn't. You won't ever, ever see one of those art house films about a Tony Pulis team. Although I would watch that. But <laughs> that the, would um, be a, that'd be a real. It'd be strangely niche, perverse, it? but it would be fun. Man in cap <laughs> and stands for press conferences. <laughs> it's not going to be come released on. in cinemas countrywide, is it? What is, is the like? standing in press conference? Gee, come on, Tony. You're Does he have so much that. energy that he just can't sit down? No, I think he's, he's so he's, so he's, no. exercised about the whole press conference he's, routine. No, he just wants. He wants to leave as quickly as possible. So he doesn't have to actually stand up and leave. Yeah. Well, he should do do a Mourinho and turn up before any of the press arrive. I know, yeah, just run that up. That would be the way to get it over and done with. He is quickly. already wearing the correct clothing for running. After all. <laughs> it's going to go straight out and do a 10k. Um, we we mentioned Andy Carroll. Um, 
rather petulantly. Um, is there a genuine value to, whether it's last resort or plan B, a value tactically to putting on a big guy and hitting it long? Well, right. Roberto Martinez at Everton with Lukaku leading the line. How many times did I hear Everton fans saying, we need to play a different way, whether you call it plan B? Because they just pass, pass, pass. They didn't play to Lukaku's strengths. Now, it isn't lumping it forward. It's a long pass into the chest. That's what I was taught as a young... Whether you're playing two up front or one up front, whether he's five foot four or six foot four, you try and play up to your strikers to then get the team up the pitch. So it's not long ball hoofing it forward. It's a long pass, a 40, 50-yard pass into the chest of a centre-forward is a different way of playing. And under Martinez at Everton, they never seemed to realise, the players didn't seem to be encouraged, full-backs, to get the ball out of their feet, drop it into the striker's chest and everyone move up the field. That's a different way of playing than rolling the ball into Gareth Barry in midfield. He gets closed down. Teams got very wise to Everton very quickly, yet they never adapted the style simply by knocking the ball 40 yards, a quality pass, not just hoofing it into space and hoping we can run after it and and keep possession it's a way of playing long ball football is now beating the press yeah long so, ball, it's long that's the wrong word long pass long pass football the, the, the pass from either the goalkeeper or a defender mm-hmm. bypassing midfield exactly. which used to be well recently has been frowned upon as being long ball football mm-hmm. is now played by all those coaches that everybody eulogizes all the time if you were to count the amount of passes that were say 50 yards plus mm-hmm. from the goalkeeper at Manchester City under yeah. Pep Guardiola Alexander Kolarov when he was playing as a centre back for Manchester City they would almost have more passes of that length than they would of the shorter passes mm-hmm. where everybody's thinking he's crazy here's Claudio Bravo playing two yards from his own goal playing it out to his centre backs on the byline yeah. so the, the long ball football in long pass football and it's it's very distilled down essence mm. is played by all managers not just managers who've got a big striker who, who they want to by- bypass midfield and move the, the, pit, the players up the pitch but it's circular so what happened you're right that, I, mean, Duard, I remember watching Guardiola play the play long ball football and I mean long ball football at Dortmund in the in the in the Classica in about 2013 and it was he played Javi Martinez at the back and the idea was that, that Martinez would punt it over the midfield because Dortmund's midfield would would stifle Bayern Munich's Was that a plan B? No, that, that was his plan A introduced For that game For that game which is how the, how top coaches work they say right this is what the opposition do this is what we're going to have to do let's, let's make it work they have that kind of fluidity and that versatility um, but it's a, it's a cycle so what will happen is when pressing falls out of favour because teams have got wise to it teams will then develop a system that means you can't play the long the, the more direct route over and you'll, you'll get lots of teams sitting in and breaking and then that'll then there'll be a competitive edge to keeping possession and not breaking and then it'll, it, there's only there's only four ways to play football there's not loads of them it's not rocket science so every, everything kind of comes into fashion then is worked out then fades from fashion that's how it that's how it works but what doesn't fade from fashion is being able to flit between different approaches uh, okay. mm-hmm. to be able to say to your opposition we can beat you however we want to beat you you don't know what's coming that's what you need you need that flexibility and I would say not just game to game but in 15-20 minute periods within games so rather than having it's a plan A, B, C, D all in one as Steve was saying that flexibility you see abroad where with the ball it's one formation without the ball it's another formation even when you're in possession that can change and constantly change because players have the ability to to do that so it's not saying right we're going to play 4-2-3-1 for 15 minutes now we're going to play 3-5-2 it constantly changes every time maybe you're even in possession players will pop up in different areas but that takes uh, not necessarily coaching but it takes an awful lot of brains and ability for players to be comfortable Mm. and it ignores 
normally comes from a, a possession based game because you don't want to be all caught up the field playing different form and then losing the ball and getting caught so you've got to keep the ball well and have really clever players who can play a variety but within the same game are you describing total football I think am I I know is, it, is he describing total football from the 1970s Ajax and then Holland uh, where essentially you, you have yeah, such interchangeable extent, yeah, systems yeah, yeah. that anybody at any time could be anywhere but the, the, the premise is is that that person is intelligent enough to understand where they are where they have just come from if they lose the ball but also they're so technically capable that they can play at any part of the pitch it wouldn't surprise me that I've come up with that but it is probably how many years, how many years too late I've okay, yeah. this come, up, come up with is not I necessarily the most with. accurate phrase well, it's, yes. it's nearly time for it to be brought back into fashion so <laughs> yeah, maybe change is actually ahead of the time a bit like Hughes jeans excellent excellent <laughs> never it will never happen this, this, this sort of thing of, of being suspicious to outsiders by the way and, and tactical ideas it's, it's not exclusively British you know this whole like remember when Marco Silva was coming in to Hull during the course of last season. Who is this guy? Why have they not just gone for Tim Sherwood? He knows about the Premier League. Well, that's the same. In, it is the same in Italy. When Frank De Boer was, was given the, the Inter job, there was absolute outcry in Italy because he had no history of Italian football. The fact that he'd come up through the ranks playing for Ajax and for Holland and, you know, it had spells all over Europe picking up all sorts of wonderful tactical ideas were utterly irrelevant to people in Italy mm. because he didn't have a grounding in Italian football. So how was he a suitable coach for a top Italian club? And he wasn't given a chance. Mm. Maybe the final point should be actually one that's raised by Michael Peter in his original uh, email to us that he suggests that, the, that there might not be a plan B simply due to resources because you have a certain squad which has been assembled by you or the previous uh, regime that has been brought together to play in one way. And whereas, Chinch, you're talking about the intellectual or tactical resources, there's also the number of players. Yeah. There might, might be an issue with the number of players that they have mm -hmm. to be able to play more than one way. Well, I don't want to steal one of Chinch's points, but Burton would, yes. would kind of counteract that wouldn't they? they they completely changed their formation yeah. from league one to the championship and had no and had no financial resources to be able no, to change no the, no the they had the same there. personnel but just said we're going to play we played a back four defensively very strong got promoted went into the championship want to take the game to the opposition we're going to play a back three wing backs and talk from and with this pretty much the same personnel maybe one or two but certainly not he's not changed half the squad to play that way I think that's the glory of this podcast you know I think the fact that we can switch inter we can interchange from, from chinch inventing total football <laughs> again to, to Steve going on about Napoli everyone, everyone loves Napoli they are Napoli are the best team in Europe to watch I would say uh, to just drop it in Burton I think that's you know what, come on, all bases is, covered what what other football podcast does this? And, we, and we've done, done all of that whilst having a really amazing meal. Rory, do you, do you know what? <laughs> Somebody needs to put that on the poster. <laughs> do you know what it is? Come on, Football Weekly. <laughs> Try and do what you do whilst eating. What this, what this is, it's total football. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Wait a minute, that's mine. That would have been a much better... <laughs> Hang on. Wait a minute, that's Hang mine. <laughs> that would have been a much better name for the podcast. Um, it's time, before we uh, all depart, for a soccer story. Now, Andy is going to tell us a tale from his playing days, or indeed his broadcasting days, just in case he wants to embarrass himself, amongst his co-workers, that has had all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. Andy George Hinchcliffe. Thank you. Uh, this is November 1998. I moved to Sheffield Wednesday in the January of that year. It was a big move, much heralded, and it worked out brilliantly. Um, but for, oh, for, for local anything, private hospitals. Don't say anything. Yes, exactly, yes. Um, but obviously playing for City, playing for Everton. I'd always prided myself when we played United. I always like to get stuck into the old Reds. Uh, so this was a game at Hillsborough. 
Uh, and it was the, the really classic, fantastic United team with Beckham and Scholes. Yeah, and they were going the, nowhere. The usual, nowhere that year. Yeah, nowhere. We, we give them an absolute drubbing at Hillsborough. We beat them 3-1. And I played against Beckham. Gary Neville's playing down that right-hand side as well. We had, as we tended to do, myself and Bex. We had a bit of a ding-dong during the... Sorry, are you going to say something, Ryan? I was going to say that you, you famously sort yes. of overshadowed him on his debut, didn't you? For it, well, we don't want to talk about that. That's another story, isn't it? Is it? I don't think it is. Anyway, back to this story. <laughs> Which is equally uh, true. I'd, I'd kept him in my pocket, apart from the goal that you created for Andy Cole. But let's ignore that. <laughs> we managed to win the game 3-1. We're having a bit of a... There was a lot of verbals going on during the course of the match. And then as we're... At the end of the game, we win 3-1, which is extraordinary for Sheffield Wednesday. So we're travelling up the, the tunnel at the end of the game. And this, this abuse is still going on. We're shouting at each other. And I, I think I said to him... As he, was, he was well away from me, I was going to say, because he was close enough to punch me. He was far enough away that I said, oh, you just effed off, whatever, because you haven't scored today. And Andy Cole, who had scored, strangely, got very upset. I thought I'd meant it about him. So he turned around, squared up to me, and, as if he wanted to kill me. And I was trying to say to him, no, no, I didn't mean you. I meant him up there with the floppy blonde hair. And Brian McClare had to come and get hold of Andy Cole and drag him away. So there's a lot of bad feeling in the tunnel after the game. So luckily enough, we get all get into the dressing rooms at Hillsborough. And what tended to be the way after games, my kids used to come and watch the, the games, but this is 98, and, and Sam was about four, Dan was about two. And after the game, they'd be in the, kind of the, the, the players' lounge or whatever. And then I'd, somebody would go and get them, bring them into the changing rooms. She used to love the changing rooms it wasn't the naked men it was the, the changing rooms and the baths and all that type of stuff can I say that you can say that you're only casting aspersions on your own children so, so we're we having obviously we've won the game the kids are in there having a great time with the little Sheffield Wednesday kits on and we, we come out the door of the, the Sheffield Wednesday cha- uh, changing room to be, there's a lineup of, of United players seemingly wanting to kill me so we've got we must have Beckham Skulls I think Ryan Giggs was better than that Phil Neville Gary Neville Nicky Butt and it might well have been Andy Cole in there as well. It was like, a, and the numbers might be wrong, but it was like a, an angry Mancunian reservoir dogs. <laughs> but they're all they're Mr. All Red. stood there. <laughs> and the language that came out of these players' mouths as I came out of the job. I had my, two kids with me, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. They are going absolutely bananas. You know, Mr. Strawberry Blonde, Mr. Squeaky. They're all giving it to me. <laughs> and I'm looking down at my kids thinking... Adults, children, adults, children, and they just—it was. Un- I've never. It was. It was like a, when you walk the, run the gauntlet. So I had to walk past them to get to the um, to the um, players' lounge with two small children under the age of four, <laughs> being absolutely bombarded with. The most disgusting, heinous language you've ever heard. And it was all about me. It wasn't about the children. If they picked on the kids, that's fine. I don't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> but Dan, it, Dan looked up at me. You know how two-year-olds tend to look up at their daddies? And I just saw any hint of, of, of favouritism toward the red side of Manchester. I could just see that red light go out of his eyes. And it turned sky blue. And he's been a City fan forever. And it's all off the back of the obscene behaviour of those five or six disgusting United players. There's something missing here, isn't there? What did you do? to Beckham on the pitch nothing why were they angry I just I just basically came out on top in a, in a head-to-head battle what did you do to Beckham on the pitch nothing did you kick him why would you think that because they, I did kick him yes they must have been angry about something they're always angry when they play did you they, try very, dis- they didn't like playing against me did you try and disfigure him in some way no I didn't did you say something particularly offensive no uh, uh. Actually, I was called something that I was very offended by. Did a, did a member of a popular female five-piece what musical act 
feature come into no. the uh, Where are you conversation. Going with this? Just wondered. Do you there. think I would stoop that low? Yes. This isn't this isn't cricket. I wasn't sledging him. We just you know we we, we all know what a what a polished and pleasant group of lads the class of ninety two are. Absolutely, they are. Never met them. We just find it hard to believe this 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 version of well, the reality. Wait a minute. What, wait what, a minute. What so was unrealistic? What's unrealistic is you you alleging that Gary Neville in some way <laughs> would be involved in some sort of protest. <laughs> he might or might not some have been there. Chippy protest. I find that very very unlikely. For it was Gary a dirty Neville. protest, but not in that <laughs> dirty language protest. <laughs> Thank you very much to Annie Hinchcliffe, as ever, for conjuring up uh, memories that perhaps are not necessarily accurate, but will uh, stay with us for quite some time. Please do subscribe, <laughs> share, rate, and review our podcast as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. And also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at setpiecemenu. The email is setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Once again, thanks to Michael Peter for providing us with our jumping off point for today's show. Thank you to Steve, Rory, and Andy, and to you for listening. And we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very, very soon indeed. Michael Peter, that sounds like a hairdresser. Hairdressers have names, yeah, like don't they? Peter, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they do, don't Well, they? I suggested it might be from, you know, the southern states of the, of, of the United States. They often have two first names, don't they? Hyphenated. I don't think there's anything wrong with being a hairdresser. I didn't say there's anything wrong with it. Did did he saw he hair. Uh, I get my hair done at Squires in Didsbury Village. The same? Does the same person cut your hair every time? Yeah, he's a really nice, really nice fella. Eduardo. He, I don't know what his name is. It's quite <laughs> embarrassing. But we, he's a United. You don't fan. know the name of the man that cuts your no, hair. No, and he's really nice. But it's been too long now to to ask. What's your? He's really nice. We, I, I have work colleagues like that. It's it's just too long now to ask. He's called Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that, that Hugh has been calling Steve mate for twenty years. <laughs> Hi, Hi, mate. What are you going to do if you become even more famous than you are? now right an even better book than you wrote first time well and he has a copy of this book and says can you just sign me a copy please rory because i know your name and can you can you sign it to me what what are you going to do uh, I'm going to sign to mate. <laughs> mate. I think he's called Dan, but I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what his name is, but he does my hair. Do you get um, a wash as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, do you yeah. have the massage where they do the, with the fingernails? It's awesome, isn't it? I'd sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, but it depends who's doing mm-hmm. it to an extent. Does, does part of you sometimes, mate slash Steve, think that we should just kind of silently move away from the table as these two guys talk like that? You just want to kind of... Shuffle off. Who does your hair? I've already your gone. Barnet. Your Barnet's pretty gone. spectacular. <laughs> You've already gone mentally. <laughs> I've already left mentally. He's nose diving into avocado. He's that desperate. You're very serious about your hair. I am. Right. And he, Hugh gets his done very regularly. Very regularly. I have to get mine done every five weeks. What do you mean have to get Good it Lord. done? Good Lord. We keep it at the right done? length. What's the right length? I've never seen it at the right a, length. A, 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 a televisual length. A television. So if you weren't on TV, because you are, because you're very talented. Thanks. Um, would you have it longer or shorter? Would you be like? Would you no, I still like it short. Really? Yeah, I just, I just wouldn't. Not like Michael Bolton, let it really go. You did have, a, you did have a sort of more bouffant <laughs> stage, didn't you? At one point. I did, but then, then television discovered me. So. <laughs>